0: well all right good morning good afternoon and good evening this is the here comes the pain podcast with your host joel Payne, presented by hip politics network thank you so much for joining the podcast again we've had a wonderful start to this podcast project Uh, we had a great interview with legendary tv voice and i do mean legendary chris Matthews. somebody who allowed me to join the platform that he set up on msnbc hardball a number of times we had a great conversation i know that the audio quality wasn't awesome i don't think i have to tell too many of you but i think you know that in this time of social distancing and coronavirus we have to be creative with how we can memorialize these conversations Chris and I had a conversation via Zoom and I know that some of his audio quality wasn't great but I hope and I believe that most people were able to decipher most of it we'll do a better job of getting audio quality out to you in the future and I want to thank Chris again Um, had really record response granted I'm only three podcasts in so really anything is a record at this point but um, really overwhelming response to that podcast Um, we are um really really um you know overperforming what i expected in terms of uh the types of subscriptions and listens that we're getting and uh, it's really really uh, appreciated and uh, it's very humbling so i want to thank everybody that's tuned in so far and we'll promise to continue to try to deliver good content to you jump into what we're going to talk about today we're still very much in the midst of this moment where race has Taking the center stage again. I, I talk about this a lot, that race is that fault line that never goes away. Um, you know, We've seen jokes on social media about how uh, coronavirus uh, w- would have been uh, you know, still the story of the day if not for racism. Racism is undefeated in American history in terms of taking our attention away from um, other things that might be going on. And that, that's very much the case. Obviously, we spent a lot of time last week talking about um, the murder of George Floyd Um, and the reaction to that, and what that meant for where our country was moving on public opinion around those issues. Um, I wanna start conversation today talking about the president and race. And look, there are some obvious takes here, right? I mean, um, Donald Trump has used race as a weapon unlike anybody we've had in the Oval Office in recent history. I always have to catch myself and say recent history. Um, And by that, I'm really talking about like FDR forward. Um, You want to depress yourself, go back and look at um, some of our presidents uh, related to race. uh, Let's just say 1920s back um, when it comes to race relations and how they spoke about black people. And look, they were obviously products of their times, but um, it's hard to compare what we're experiencing now with Donald Trump to those men and of course we all know that our presidents have all been men but it's hard to it's hard to compare donald trump to those men um other than the fact that um you know donald trump uh clearly has a blind spot the the most the most generous way you could describe it is that he has a blind spot around race um you know without if you if you want to avoid talking about what's in his heart um blind spot might be the 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 way to go but Anyways, I want to to talk a little bit about Trump and race and a couple of things. Um, The president's talked about how he is going to restart his rallies, which have obviously become infamous in the time that he's been a political figure over the last five or so years. Um, His first kind of kickoff rally post what he imagines to be post-coronavirus, obviously, you know, most people with a brain understand that we are not anywhere near the end of the road on coronavirus. And most public health experts expect a second wave. Um, we've even seen some indicators. that The second wave is already starting. But, you know, the, the president has announced that he's going to uh, start his rallies again. And his first you know, of his kickoff rallies are going to be in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Um, and it's going to be on June 19th. Now, June 19th, um, for you know, most people, I'd, I'd say most African-Americans um, understand that June 19th holds significance because that is Juneteenth. That is the, uh, the day that, um, you know, black Americans, uh, black people, they were slaves at the time, uh, were given their freedom. Um, and it has always been a holiday in the black community. Um, it has been something that has become popularized. Um, As something to remark and to celebrate, um, you know, across other communities, I'd say, in the last decade or so. Um, I'm hearing a lot of people talk about Juneteenth right now, uh, which is making me wonder when did everybody get religion on Juneteenth, which is great. But um, I'll I'll have a little bit more to say about that, about some observations about race right now as a black man in this country. But so the president's going to do his first of his uh, campaign rallies in Tulsa, Oklahoma on Juneteenth. Um, the obvious blind spot there is, um, you know, Juneteenth is this moment of significance for, uh, African-Americans in our country. And Tulsa is the site of probably the most, one of the most infamous race riots in the history of our country. I have to say one of the most because, um, we, we've had a lot of moments like that. We've had a lot of incidents like that, but I believe it was 1921 was the Tulsa race riots. Um, So this obviously has struck a chord with a lot of folks um, in the African-American community because it's such an obvious slap in the face um, to black people, particularly for a president that has spent a not insignificant amount of time talking about appealing to black voters. Now, you know, the supermajority of black voters are not gonna support Donald Trump. One, he's a Republican and black voters typically in large numbers support Democrats in the modern era. Um, This particular Republican, Donald Trump, is particularly abhorrent to many Black people. Um, I will say that he doesn't have zero Black support. I believe he got around eight percent, as our White House Press Secretary uh, Kayleigh McEnany uh, reminded us of this week. Uh, I love that she kind of waved that around and uh, as, as if that was something to be proud of. Uh, you know, compared to Mitt Romney getting six percent, I guess it is. Um, but the president has spent some time talking about appealing to Black voters. So. How is any black voter supposed to take that seriously when the president is essentially launching his campaign in a site that has historical significance in a, in a negative way for African-Americans on a day that has historical significance for positive reason for African-Americans? And you, you can't imagine that the president or anyone on that staff and let's be honest, I know he doesn't have the most diverse staff in the world, Um, I mean, we've heard that Stephen Miller is kind of taking the pin and taking the lead on race relations, which, you know, Stephen Miller, an avowed white supremacist, a guy who's a complete joke. Let me just tell you, as someone who used to work in the Senate, um, I know plenty of stories that I probably won't share here on this platform of the buffoonery of Stephen Miller and um, many folks who can't imagine him being in that proximity to power. But that's the president's lead guy on race, and he's an avowed white supremacist and white nationalist somebody who is a minion of Steve Bannon, who is the, essentially, he is the legacy of Steve Bannon in that White House. Obviously, someone like that, with those views, has to have some understanding of what that means to African Americans. And let's just say they don't. Let's just give them the benefit of the doubt and say, you know what, it was an oversight. It's been a long couple of months with coronavirus and George Floyd response and a sundry of other things. Let's give them the benefit of the doubt then how about you change it? What, what, what rule is there against that, against reversing course, coming out and saying, our bad, instead what we're going to do is, we're going to do uh, you know, something to celebrate Juneteenth, and we're going to do something to engage African Americans on that day, and I can do my rally another day. Also, um, I've been on two presidential campaigns. I have a pretty good idea of the campaign map. Uh, this will be the first time I would ever uh, see a scenario where Tulsa, Oklahoma, in that battleground state of Oklahoma, has been seen as a real priority for a Republican president. Th- th- this is the equivalent of Joe Biden launching his campaign in a place like, God, I don't know, Seattle, Washington, which is like a strongly Democratic city and a strongly Democratic state. There's, there's really no reason to do that. So you have to assume that it's a nefarious intent. But- you know, this president has stumbled around on race. Um, sometimes stumbled around might be a little bit too kind of an interpretation. Um, I, I think he's also fanned the flames of racism. Um, I think Val Demings, it was a couple of weeks ago who had the tweet that, um, you know, the country is on fire and Donald Trump is walking around pouring gasoline all over it. And, and, and that really is what Donald Trump's presidency has amounted to is in, in terms of race relations. You know, he famously asked people, what the hell do you have to lose, particularly African-Americans? He asked them that four years ago when he was a candidate for president. And I I think we've all seen that there's a lot to lose. Um, You know, and I say this as a Democrat, too, who... Um, has worked for a party and worked for candidates that have been less than perfect on all the issues that matter to African Americans. Democrats should and could have done more on police uh, reform. Democrats played a role in an incomplete crime bill. Um, Democrats have played a role on uh, you know criminalizing drugs that disproportionately uh, impact um, black communities and throwing our young men, fathers, brothers, uh, you know sons in prison. Um, and ruining lives and ruining families. Democrats have played a role in that as well. This all didn't start with Donald Trump, and it all doesn't end with Republicans. But I think anyone who is looking here knows which party is on the side of African Americans in a more consistent manner. Maybe the execution isn't always right, but Democrats have generally demonstrated an attempt to address the issues that concern African Americans. Donald Trump has only talked about addressing the concerns of African-Americans. And you can't believe him when he does something like that, when he would do something like start a campaign in Tulsa, the site of these race riots, or he would hold a rally on Juneteenth, not even understanding the significance of that day. How can you appeal to African-American voters and not understand that? Okay, so then let's also look at what's happening with the RNC. So the Republican National Committee announced that they are, uh, I suppose, to some degree, officially moving their uh, nominating convention from Charlotte, North Carolina, which, by the way, um, I spent about nine years growing up in North Carolina. I know Charlotte very well. My family, my parents still live uh, outside of Charlotte. Both my brothers live outside of Charlotte. Um, I know that area very, very well. That's, that is a, the, the purplest of purple states right now. Um, it did go for Trump in 16, and it went for Romney in 12, but it went for Obama in 8. And you've got a Democratic governor there now. It's certainly a state that Donald Trump needs to hold on to if he wants to get reelected to a second term in November. So Donald Trump, because he doesn't want to adhere to the social distancing guidelines that his own CDC... And his own health experts have advised Governor Cooper in North Carolina to follow. Donald Trump threw a hissy fit and decided because he wanted to do a large event that did not adhere to social distancing guidelines, he decided, I got to move that event to Jacksonville, Florida. It was just announced that um, by by uh, RNC chairwoman uh, Ronna uh, McDaniel, formerly known as Ronna Romney McDaniel. Uh, that's what it, by the way, uh, that's the price of loyalty in Trump land is you got to drop uh, your surname. She's a relative of Mitt Romney, and uh, you know, she's not allowed to use that name around Donald Trump because that offends him so much. That's who she's working for. But it, albeit, albeit such, um, Republicans are moving their nominating convention to Jacksonville, Florida now the president is gonna give his acceptance speech right it's a formality donald trump is going to be the republican nominee but he's going to give his acceptance speech in jacksonville okay on a day that has significance for another reason related to race he's giving that speech on the same day as a very very infamous kkk massacre that happened some i believe 60 years ago um, And again, it's that racial blind spot. Nobody's saying that just because Donald Trump and Republicans happen to schedule something on these dates that that makes the case for racism. No. But if you're making a real attempt to reach out to you know, a sect of voters who, by the way, have no reason to feel like they're a part of your governing coalition and no reason to feel like They are uh, voters that matter within your view of America, okay? If you want to bring those people in, these are the kind of mistakes that you can't make. And the problem is, is we can't trust that it's a mistake. There is nothing in Donald Trump's record to suggest that this is a mistake, okay? Particularly with the people behind him. You can sell me on the notion that Donald Trump has no idea what the Tulsa race riots are, and that Donald Trump had never heard of Juneteenth until someone put it in his briefing book two days ago. And you could convince me that Donald Trump didn't know about a KKK rally, but you can't convince me that the people around him didn't. And that's the problem. Donald Trump has created open season for these people to infiltrate his government, infiltrate his inner circle, and make decisions that impact all of us with a worldview that is disgusting, that is grotesque, and that is harmful to black Americans and that's the problem he's got people around him that know better even if he doesn't know better so when people tell you well it doesn't matter who the president is it just matters the, the people around them well you can't have it both ways right either the president matters because they've got the the vision and they've got the values that uh, outfit an organization and they decide to bring in people that speak to those values or The president doesn't matter because they're smart enough to identify folks who are going to represent the country. So it doesn't matter that Donald Trump's the president because he's going to have a diverse uh, group of people around him that are going to make sure that, uh, you know, everybody's interest and everybody's opinions are represented. Well, we found out that's not the case. You can't believe that in Donald Trump's government. There is nothing that we've seen to suggest that. Donald Trump has the, uh, has the discipline and has the interest to build the type of governing coalition around him that's going to be responsive to the needs of African American. Hell, least we not forget what's also in the news right now, which is this push by many Democrats to change the name of multiple military bases around the country that are all named for Confederate generals, which I'm embarrassed to say... I didn't even realize places like Fort Bragg and some of these other military bases and installations were named for Confederate generals. I'm embarrassed to say that, but I think it's actually a really brilliant political move by Elizabeth Warren, who's leading the effort in Congress to change these, and she's really actually pigeonholed Trump to a position that he's going to have a hard time defending. Again, this is an easy type of issue that the president could have a winning position on for his political fortunes. He could say, yes, we're going to move to change the name of these bases. Because under what other society would you have where a Confederacy that tried to blow up the Union and that lost the war has the opportunity to be honored and immortalized in statues and in base names? That's what you have to remind yourself of as the reality of many Black people around this country, that this is what we've had to live with. That we've had to understand that the schools that we go to, or the buildings, the government buildings that we, you know, have to go into on a regular basis, on a daily basis, they're all named for these people who enslaved and who oppressed our ancestors. I would love for someone to explain to me why I would have any interest participating in a society that celebrates the oppressors of people like my great-grandfather, who was a sharecropper in the Jim Crow South. Why in the hell would I want to celebrate anyone that spent their life and spent their blood and treasure committed to keeping him oppressed? That's something to think about. So the next time someone tries to tell you that Donald Trump is going after the black vote and that Donald Trump deserves a second look from the black community because of things like the First Step Act, which honestly was a layup. Right. That's that's table. That's that's the floor of what should have been done. Like, yes, it's great that he signed the First Step Act and it's great that they spent time on it and they worked with people like Van Jones, et cetera. But that's not enough. He passed a tax cut bill that disadvantaged African-Americans. He's administered the response to coronavirus, by the way, that targets African-Americans in a way that does not protect our community. He has an inner circle with people that do not look like America. Ben Carson, as the only member of his cabinet, does not count. I'm sorry, that's not good enough. And so the next time, again, someone tries to tell you that Donald Trump is really going after the African-American vote, tell them to show you the receipts, because what we've seen so far, it doesn't add up. We're going to take a quick break for a moment. Here on the Here Comes the Pain podcast, I'm your host Joel Payne. We're going to take a quick break and we're going to come right back and we're going to talk about police reform in depth a little bit. We want to get into kind of the different paths that are starting to form in terms of what real police reform could look like. I'm going to tell you some buzzwords to look out for and I'm going to give you my take on where we're going to go from here. So we're going to take a short break and then we'll be right back with more of our discussion here here on the Here Comes the Pain podcast. And we're back here on the Here Comes the Pain podcast. I'm your host, Joel Payne. Here Comes the Pain podcast presented by Hip Politics Network. I wanna jump into our next topic here, which is the policy impact of what's happened in these recent weeks related to the death of George Floyd. Wanna talk through some ideas you may have heard about that have already been surfaced and some of the implications behind some of those ideas. Floyd has um, elevated this idea of police violence and police brutality um, that you know, the black community has known about for a long time. It's been so interesting that um, this has been a real awakening and a come to Jesus moment for so many of my um, white friends, neighbors and colleagues. Um, and um, it's almost as if they didn't believe us when we said that the police have been beating us up and beating up our cousins and our brothers and our fathers and our grandfathers and our daughters and our sisters that the police have been targeting and have been extra brutal and over the top and used excessive force and in many instances taken the lives of many black Americans. Um, That's not something that was a popular opinion. That's not something that was an accepted opinion until a few weeks ago, really. It's the reason why you've seen the NFL switch its position on Colin Kaepernick and why Colin Kaepernick now has the majority position not just among the players but really among the public if you look at some of the polling black lives matter has enjoys six and ten plus um, popularity and support um, across the country which still seems a little low to me but that's a significant number in this environment um, so anyways this entire idea of police reform has really become a, a flashpoint here because of where we are um, just related to the spate of um, violence against black americans so you know the issue of police violence is a public policy challenge now that is going to face the president it's going to face both chambers of congress and it's going to be something that if you're joe biden you're going to have to develop a real plan around Um, now biden took some criticism um, because he um, communicated some of his ideas around police reform in an op-ed Earlier this week, I forget what publication it is. Excuse me. But um, he had a a pretty well covered um, op ed this week. And, you know, Biden's plan actually is the plan that's been on his website for a number of months. Um, Don't believe me. Just look at all the journalists on political Twitter that took time to point that out. I pick on them, but I understand why they pointed that out. They, they weren't new ideas that the Biden campaign and that the former vice president was elevating. Um, these are ideas that have existed for a while. And um, to be honest, um, he took some heat and some criticism for some of those ideas for not going far enough. And I think we're going to see a lot of that in this moment. We're going to see um, a lot of traditional remedies that are going to be rejected because the energy on the street doesn't feel like traditional response is what's called for in this moment. What the feeling is on the street and by the street I just mean what the feeling is by folks who have you know been on the streets the last couple of weeks protesting every day, uh, making their voices heard, um, you know making sure that they keep the memory of George Floyd alive and keep this issue front and center they feel like incrementalism is not good enough and they feel like weak need, Responses, and I'm not, I'm not characterizing the Biden response in that way, but I think many of them would. And I, I think that in this moment, if you're a public official, you cannot be seen as being weak. You can't be seen as being cautious on this issue or else you're gonna lose the energy and you're gonna lose the support um, from from those in that community if you wanna engage those folks. And there's a real question about whether someone like a Joe Biden can engage that community. I think, I think we know Donald Trump is going to have a pretty difficult time engaging the leadership of Black Lives Matter, which is a pretty decentralized movement um, anyways. Um, but, I mean, we've even seen um, D. Ray McKesson, who is obviously very noted as a leader within the Black Lives Matter movement and is a leader in the kind of anti-racism, anti-police brutality movement. He was criticized for endorsing um, this eight-can't-wait platform Um, from campaign zero, which is, you know, led by people who are alumni of the President Obama political network, um, that was roundly criticized, again, because the feeling is it wasn't good enough. It wasn't, it it was too incremental, and it was too cautious, and it wasn't bold enough. So anyways, we've got a couple lanes here. I want to lay those out really quickly. So about a week ago, the Nancy Pelosi-led Democratic House Passed, um, or excuse me, announced, they haven't passed it yet, but announced a package of, um, you know, what you would call a series of police reform measures. And they range from things like creating a national registry of police officers who um, are, uh, you know, accused or who are convicted um, of brutality or police violence. So, you know, you've had situations where some police officers will be. Um, accused of something in one jurisdiction, they'll go get a job somewhere else and that record won't follow them. Now, the same way if you were accused of robbery or if you're you know, convicted of robbery, that, that's gonna follow you around. Well, that, that wasn't happening with police officers. That hasn't been happening on a consistent enough basis. There's a lot of inconsistency with kind of local laws and regulations. So federal government wants to step in here. Um, there's also um, things to address um, independent prosecutors Um, And again, there are limits on what the federal government can do here because a lot of this is in local and state jurisdiction. But I think that there's some guidance around um, that, around um, what we should be doing and what we should be modeling in terms of creating independence um, in prosecutor's offices so that these prosecutors aren't influenced by these police officers who have to work with Because remember, if you're a prosecutor, you're relying upon police officers to make sure that um you're able to win the cases right because their motivator the thing that they are that they are focused on is getting convictions and being able to close out cases successfully for the prosecutor and that prosecutor relies on a relationship with the police office well obviously if there's an internal affairs issue with the police office a prosecutor is not gonna feel fully compelled to go after people that they often have to partner with so Again, there are some some changes which I think are certainly significant um, as a part of that Democratic package, but they don't feel significant enough. Um, the the one big thing or the, the probably the two big issues there would be about, um, you know, how we do police funding. I think the Democratic package has some language in there about um, whether or not, um, you know, money should go to more police training and. Um, you know, how uh, money for policing should be meted out. Um, it's not the strongest language possible, right, in terms of, you know, those who kind of believe in the whole defund the police movement. I'll get to that a little bit more in a second. Um, it's it's a little bit of a middle of the road position, essentially. But, you know, without going through the, the bill and chapter and verse, the, the basic point is it's kind of a middle approach. It's kind of a third way approach, not literally the group third way, but it's kind of a A third door um, approach Okay The energy on the street is really around Defund the police Which has become a topic that has become Very misunderstood I think in this environment Which is apt to happen Right Um, People are upset, they're pissed off Um, You have this man who's had his neck um, Kneed on for Eight and a half minutes plus And there's rage And the I think the policy position that many who are really, really central to that Black Lives Matter movement, that anti-police brutality movement, was defund the police, right? That was a, a big talking point. That still remains a big talking point. Well, look, to political pros, frankly, people like myself, people who do polling, people who have to, you know, brief candidates on running winning campaigns that capture a cross-section of folks, I think there's a lot of concern about running a campaign around defund the police. Many in what I would call kind of the kind of elite class of, you know, uh, the Democratic Party, like kind of the center left, right? Not people all the way to the left or not people who are um, all the way in the activist community, but people who are really kind of in the governing community will tell you that that's a non-starter. They've seen the polling on it. Um, The polling is really problematic and is troublesome. I don't know if we're going to end up in a place where the polling is going to ultimately be problematic and troublesome, right? Like I think what, what that attitude probably reflects is a lot of scar tissue built up from folks who have done that job for a long time. People who worked in campaigns and worked on Capitol Hill for 20 years will tell you that's the type of messaging that will alienate voters in the middle that's the type of messaging that'll lose you a state like Michigan or lose you a state like Wisconsin or it makes you non-competitive in Florida and Georgia and North Carolina because those voters, those people in the middle who we have to win, they're not going to get behind a defund the police narrative. It it's, it's really is in a way. It's kind of an extension of the fight that the Democrats were having in the primary this cycle around kind of the language that like a Bernie Sanders or an AOC or an Elizabeth Warren would use versus the language of a Joe Biden or an Amy Klobuchar and uh, despite a lot of twists and turns we saw that right now the party feels like at least the party the part of the party that showed up in ways that really registered the party feels a little bit more like Joe Biden right now than it does like Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren but don't want to complicate the issue here but anyways Kind of on the far extreme, you have this defund the police um, narrative and kind of goalpost that's been set up by activists, which is a very popular position. And it's already been demagogued. The president, it showed up in his Twitter feed. You've had a number of kind of high profile Republicans in the Senate and in Congress who've talked about this. You've had people in the president's inner circle try to talk this up as kind of a, a, a blunder and almost like a trap for Joe Biden now Biden for his part has already come out and said he doesn't support defund the police but then when you look at some of his ideas they actually are not far off from what the defund the police movement would would say but the people in that movement want to hear the words defund the police so the the words matter to them and the aesthetic matters here to them but it matters in a different way to the people in the governing class of the party who have to go out and actually win votes in suburban communities, in rural areas, and places where again, the reason why Joe Biden is the candidate for the Democratic Party is because he has a record, or he has the best supposed uh, opportunity to win over those votes. So that's a real tension point there. And um, I, you know, I, I think um, that position is not fully represented in a bill. I'm sure that there are members of the Pro- progressive caucus and. There are kind of some some more kind of activist-driven politicians in the House um, who would probably be open to putting out a bill that feels a little bit more like, again, what that energy on the street reflects, but that's kind of that position. And then you have another position, which we don't know fully what it's going to look like yet, but I think we have a good idea. And I call that the more conservative position. And so the White House has already talked about the president is going to look at executive orders around training and around, um, you know, just kind of some nibble around the edges um, type of measures. And the White House and Mitch McConnell have looked to Tim Scott, who is the lone black Republican in the Senate Republican Conference. Um, he's obviously the junior senator from South Carolina. Um, and, and, and it's actually been pretty outspoken on George Floyd's murder, and obviously South Carolina has a long history of racial violence, but more recently also you had the case of Walter Scott. Um, so Tim Scott has emerged as a leader in the Republican party around these issues, and he's expected to work to develop some legislative language that the president, that Mitch McConnell, that Republicans in government can get behind. That is not expected to really make anyone in the center or on the left that happy it might be able to pull some port away some support away um in the center and and by that i'm talking about people who are really moderate maybe people who voted for trump in 2016 but who are a little bit um kind of you know um you know wobbly on on support for him this time around because of a lot of these complicated racial politics that the president has created but i think the anticipation will be that that tim scott driven package is going to be pretty weak and it's going to be pretty conservative and that is going to be the position that is going to infuriate activists when that might be treated as kind of the negotiating starting point if that's treated as negotiating starting point that's a complete non-starter um and there's one issue that that bill we know almost for certainty is not going to include and it's an issue called qualified immunity and for those who don't know what qualified immunity is it's essentially police officers if they have a situation like officer Chauvin in Minnesota with George Floyd there is a an immunity that almost is like a halo effect around the officers to protect them from um, legal action from certain civil action because they are doing their job in the public service. And so they're almost indemnified from being exposed to certain criminal um, accusations or certain civil accusations. And it's a real pressure point. It's something, by the way, that when President Obama looked at, um, you know, uh, trying to tinker around the edges on police reform, he was criticized for not being aggressive enough on, you know, a lot of, a lot of people, Um, you know, are talking about Trump and his reaction here. And and again, look, Donald Trump um, deserves no defense here and is not going to get any from me. But these problems didn't start with Donald Trump. Um, And a lot of people would say that one of Barack Obama's low points when he was in office was his reaction around Ferguson and the reaction of his Justice Department. Um, You know, many on the left did not feel that that was swift enough or that was impactful enough. Um, and this issue of unqualified immunity um, was something that was a difficult, thorny political issue for um, President Obama to deal with. Um, Look, the police union is very strong, um, and typically it's a union that um, some Democrats have been able to garner some support from, um, particularly on on a local level. Um, It has not always been kind of a tool of the Republican Party. It has kind of become that lately, kind of because of the way Donald Trump divides up the electorate and um, the, the, the way that Donald Trump does his politics, it's kind of clarified and it's forced people on one side or people on another side. Um, but, you know, historically the police union has actually been kind of an up up for grabs, um, you know, uh, constituency group um, that Democrats can vie for um, just as much as Republicans can. But in this environment right now, um, they feel like a solidly um, Republican conservative Um, Group at least at the grass tops levels, right? Maybe when you get down to grassroots police officers, maybe it's a little bit different, but the leadership of the police unions are all pretty um, solid behind Donald Trump because Trump has taken a very pro-police, you know, anti-accountability position around police. So anyways, you've got those three lanes. You've got the Democrat package in the House that's already been introduced, which is kind of the incremental package. You've got the feeling on the street, Um, For, you know, defund the police and obviously stripping away things like unqualified immunity, which is kind of the far left progressive, you know, dream uh, tree of a a reform package. And then you've got this anticipated Republican package that's going to be led by Tim Scott that is going to probably not come close to addressing the concerns of those who have filled the streets over the last few weeks and have really been pushing the tempo on this discussion around police reform. Um, So we'll we'll see what happens. I I will say this, I think something's going to pass. Now, some people would say it would be better if nothing passed than if something passed. I'd, I'd have to look and see what the final package will end up being. But what's interesting about, you know, just, you know, taking away all of the perceptions we have about Donald Trump and Republicans and, um, you know, even the police politics I was just talking about, you know, most Republicans kind of had the right position on George Floyd at the beginning of this. And, and by that, I just mean Republicans, generally speaking, were saying the right thing. Even the president early on, I want to be very clear early on, was saying the right thing, so theoretically this should have been a layup for the president and for the White House to demonstrate strong support for police accountability, without jeopardizing his position of having strong support in the you know police unions and you know with police across the country and with the law enforcement um, constituency across the country, right? This should have been an easy place for Donald Trump to kind of do some of the smart election year politics that most incumbent presidents like to do because I've never seen a president, not in my lifetime or not in any other lifetime, an incumbent president that has no desire to grow their base of vote. I've never experienced that at all where you've got a president who said, I don't want any more voters. There's no one else I wanna add to my coalition, even though my coalition of voters are getting older they are um, getting outnumbered they are increasingly rural they are increasingly whiter older more male i don't want to add to that electorate donald trump has offended every group that he could possibly reach out to okay but what's interesting about this is trump could have used this as an opportunity to grab some support there's a there was a path here and it's expired now but it was about two weeks ago where trump could have Demonstrated some leadership here. There was an there was an opportunity there. I know that might be controversial to some, and again, Donald Trump has no friend in me. But there was a pathway for Donald Trump to win over support um, from those who were outraged by what happened to George Floyd, and he passed on it. And I think the last, um, rather the podcast before last, um, I suggested that the president could have really taking control of the moment in a way that could have engaged the activists who were on the street protesting and also demonstrated some leadership for what police should be doing, which is they should not be beating more people and they should not be pushing down 75-year-old men or knocking in Buffalo, New York, or knocking over women in New York City or pulling a you know, young black motorist couple out of their car in Atlanta and tasing them Right? They shouldn't be doing that in this moment. What they should be doing is putting down their guns and saying, we join you and we support you and your frustration related to police brutality and we want to help. And we've seen little pockets of that, but the president could have been a leader on that. There was a pathway for Donald Trump to lead on this and he passed on it because he doesn't know how to do that. He doesn't know how to lead through unity and he doesn't know how to lead through bringing people together. And he'll be the first president ever to be reelected without adding to his coalition if he's able to do that this november which is why most prognosticators will tell you the more donald trump talks the better it is for joe biden because all it does is demonstrate that trump does not have a path to grow that base not just nationally right because we know trump won by losing by three million votes to hillary clinton in 2016 but he also won because he was able to win in places like michigan in Wisconsin and Pennsylvania and Florida. Well, guess what? He's underwater in all of those places right now. Now the election is five plus months from right now, but if the election was held today, Donald Trump would lose in probably a historical route. The only good news for him is that there's five months between now and election day, and he's got time to, um, to repair the damage that he's caused himself politically. But again, related to police reform, the three lanes that I just described here are really what you should pay attention to as you're thinking about what might happen and what could possibly be a solve. Something is going to happen. The question is, is it going to be enough to quell the concerns and to address the concerns of those on the street who, by the way, have lost all faith in institutional remedies anyway. They don't believe in any governing body actually doing justice to their position. By the way, that's not just Republicans, that's Democrats. So. That's where we are politically on that issue. A lot to watch there. Again, this is the Here Comes the Pain" podcast. I'm your host, Joel Payne. We're going to take a quick break here, and we're going to come back, and we're going to finish up with another topic that, um, you know, the the topic itself is not light, but I think you'll uh, somewhat enjoy the the relatively light approach I'll take to it. I'm going to talk a little bit about being black over the last three weeks vis-a-vis the white people in your life and again there's a lot of thorny issues there and that might be a little uncomfortable to some but take a listen i think you'll enjoy it i just want to kind of give you a sense of what that's been like through my eyes as a black man watching the world shift watching the center shift essentially overnight over the last three weeks so we'll be right back here on the here comes the pain podcast again i'm your host joel Payne, and we'll be right back with more discussion and we'll finish up our podcast um, so let's finish up here with the discussion about you know being black in this era. And look, there's a lot of ways you can you can take that. I want to take a somewhat lighter view of it, which is, um, you know, over the last few weeks, look, the world has changed in terms of opinions about things like police violence, police brutality, um, racial injustice, systematic racism. I'm hearing things in professional networks about, white supremacy and about um you know white patriarchy and um terminology and language and words that i would not have imagined would be used so freely and so openly um i've seen a number of memes many of which are very very funny Um, funny memes about topics that can often be very unfunny but um, funny nonetheless and uh, it's it's really animating this moment but look as a as a black guy this has been such an interesting experience. Let me explain part of it. So, I have a very diverse network of friends, and you know, coworkers, and um, associates, and gosh, family, and and people who are really close to me, who are in my orbit. And it started happening probably a few days after the tragic killing of George Floyd, where I started getting these kind of out of nowhere messages, and calls, and texts, and emails and and you know direct messages on Twitter and on IG and you know I started it started the the tone of it sounded something like hey Joel I'm just checking in on you how are you doing buddy or hey how how, how's it going is there anything I can do for you um so sorry what's happening you know let me know if there's anything I can do for you and I want to be very very clear okay I'm, I'm I'm kind of poking some fun here and a lot of people who listen to this are probably some of the people who may have sent those messages i love you all this is not i'm not taking a shot at anybody um all the messages were received with the loved intention that they were sent with but it felt to me as like a member of my family had passed away um which it's it's interesting because look I, i think on the more serious note The passing of George Floyd felt familiar to a lot of black people, but I think also because it's been a part of this routine of black death, black death as a spectacle, as a public spectacle that we've seen in recent years, unfortunately, I think a lot of black people have become somewhat desensitized to it and to um, what the experience is of watching a man have his life taken away from us on tv in public very much like a lynching we watched it with ahmaud arbery um you know we've we've heard about it with brianna taylor there's not video we we watched it with walter scott um we heard about it with trayvon martin it's become spectacle and it's become really um grotesque and and really something that um as a black person you've just kind of i don't want to say you've learned to live with but you've learned to cope with because it's been a reality of daily life and again for so long i don't want to say white people weren't believing us but maybe they weren't hearing us the way that we wanted them to hear us so that's the the serious application of it obviously the funny application of it is like for me i'm kind of doing my thing i mean obviously um very sad about what happened to mr floyd very sad for his family and, and very sad, honestly, for the implications of our country. Like, look, there's righteous anger on the streets, but nobody likes seeing cities burning. Nobody likes seeing um, people wailing out in sadness and in anger. Nobody likes seeing anarchy on the streets. We saw a little bit of that. We probably didn't see as much of it, by the way, as existed. Uh, we probably we probably saw a little bit more um, than, than, than maybe there was out there. I think the media had a little role in that. We'll, we'll talk a little bit about... Media sensationalization on another podcast, as my my friend Roscoe here hears something, so he's trying to make some noise, try to keep him quiet. But um, there were there were things that were you know were going on out there, a lot of energy that a lot of black people were feeling were kind of internalizing, and it it, it almost it was the first time a lot of these white people in my life in my orbit who I love dearly had realized. I think in a very real way, like, oh, my God, the trauma that must be associated with this. So really what I took a lot of those messages and text and emails and, um, you know, random call outs um, as I, I took them as kind of welfare checks, which were really great. And by welfare checks, I mean checking on my welfare, um, checking on my well-being. Um, I took those very much in the spirit they were intended, but it did make me chuckle. And a lot of my black friends, we've kind of shared stories about this, about how. White white folks have just been calling and reaching out and just being like, "How you doing? How's everything going? Sorry about what's happening." I know there's even been articles that have been um, circulating around different communities. Let's just say the the you know my friends in the white community, um, there've been articles circulating around about what to say and what not to say to your your black friends and family and coworkers, etc. Uh, it has just been an interesting. Thing I mean, a couple of these messages I I I was completely blindsided. I didn't even know how to respond. I mean, one of them, um, which again I'm, I'm not naming any names here and I'm not calling anybody out, but the message presupposed that I had been kind of down in the dumps. It was I think it was Friday before last, and you know the message was laid layered with I know it's a tough time for you, and um, I know you're really struggling. And, and look, again, definitely feeling what's happening with George Floyd and what's happening. Um, on the streets. But, you know, I, I, I try to keep a positive attitude about some other things that are going on. And I almost wonder, like, did I tell this person that something else was happening in my life? I, I did lose a family member a couple of weeks ago. So I'm wondering, like, oh, maybe they're asking about that. Or you're, you're, trying to, you're trying to get an understanding for what people are digging for, what they're hinting at. And I think it's just because my white friends and my white counterparts are starting to see what the experience is like of being black in america and i think that it's somewhat apology and it's a kind of a sheepish kind of admission that maybe um they kind of missed some of the warning signs and it it was awkward to experience and but but it's very well-intentioned, and it's not something that I, even a lot of the black folks I've talked to, it's nothing that any of the people in my orbit, the black people in my orbit, have taken offense to, but it's certainly something that we noticed. It, it almost feels like this was the the month that racism became real for white people. Um, and again, on a little bit more of a serious interpretation of this, it feels like when the police started turning those tactics on young white people on not just young white people on old white people again the the gentleman up in Buffalo New York who's 75 years old um the things that have been happening to my black brothers and sisters for a long time have started happening now to members of the media to white people to white people of all ages and also white people of all political backgrounds because let me tell you something I know this for a fact the political affiliation of the folks that you've seen marching they are not all car carrying members of the DNC, and they are not all far-lefty Bernie Sanders supporters. There's a wide cross-section of people who are marching. Um, I was at the march in Washington, D.C., the most recent Friday, or rather the most recent Saturday, excuse me, um, which, honestly, at that point, it felt a little bit more like a street festival when we got to the White House and we got around where Mayor Bowser in Washington, D.C. had painted Black Lives Matter on the street That has kind of become a gathering point, but it it felt like a little bit more of a street festival and kind of quasi celebration, quasi um, defiant celebration. I should say celebration is the wrong word, but you know, a real kind of defiant, um, you know, claiming of that land and of that area as something that is a safe space for diversity and a safe space for, um, you know, kind of broad opinion. But you know, that cross-section of people that i saw there they again they weren't all democrats they weren't all black i'd say the majority of the people i saw at dc last saturday were white they were you know not all people who vote like i vote many of them would have had a different vote in 2016 than i did up and down the ballot and i think that that's telling for what this moment has meant in terms of mainstreaming police brutality and police violence in a way where it hasn't been before because I'm telling you our white counterparts did not believe us. Dave Chappelle has this joke in one of his earlier comedy specials and I know Dave Chappelle just released another comedy special um, I think at one in the morning last night but he has this this joke in a comedy special from about 10-15 years ago where he says the police have been beating our asses for years And then white people saw it on Newsweek And they finally believed it um, The only thing that was wrong with that joke Is that they saw it on Newsweek 20 years ago And they still didn't really believe it uh, Me and a lot of my buddies joke around About that that comedy bit from Chappelle But it's so true That this is the, the time This month, this three week period That we're, we're in the midst of right now This is the time that you know, police violence became real for most of America. And yes, it's because they saw it in a very real way with the murder of George Floyd. But it's also because they experienced it in the way that police were treating protesters on the street. And you have a strongman president who only speaks one language, only speaks one caveman language and doesn't see the world in gray areas, but only sees black and white, literally black and white. And it's become a dangerous scene Not just to be black around police But it's become dangerous to be critical Around police And so this has been an instructive time for our country But again um, This has been kind of an odyssey For me as a black person um, Over the last Few weeks because I've been getting these well, wellness checks And these you know Questions about whether I'm okay And uh, I've, I've really Resisted the urge to to say like, hey man, racism's been around for a while. It didn't just start this week. We've been we've been talking about racism in our communities, and we've been trying to talk to you guys about it for a long time. Um, the only good part is is that now everybody's listening, or most people are listening, and most people are engaged. And so um, we'll, we'll end on that note that uh, hopefully you know uh, this is the beginning. We're still at the beginning of a conversation that is going to be really productive in terms of real policy changes that, um, that address police violence in a real, substantive way, right? Not a, you know, around the edges, half a loaf, weak need response, but something that's very real and that's very tangible. And a, just a, a general change in attitude in police culture. You know, towards the end of my conversation with Chris Matthews last week, we talked about how beyond the brutality of the police, The lack of common sense and judgment was jarring to me. You know, when I think about Omar Jimenez, that reporter from CNN, the Afro-Caribbean reporter who was on the street in Minneapolis and was obviously a member of the media and obviously was doing everything that you could have asked him to do. And I swear to God, when I heard him speaking to the police officer, when the police officer confronted him, it sounded literally like the script that my father gave to me and my two brothers when we were growing up of what to say, how to say it, the tone to have when you're talking to a police officer. Not because my father wants us to kiss up or kiss ass to police officers, but because he wants us to come home alive. And Omar Jimenez did that. He checked off every single box. There is no reasonable person watching that who could have thought, this is somebody who's a threat, who needs to be neutralized. Whatever that officer was told, my guess is that that officer was told, "Don't take anything from anybody. you know, take no prisoners, um, be tough, you know, own the streets, you know, all that ridiculous language we heard from the president. My guess is that he was filled up with some directive like that. I guess what's unsettling and what's so frustrating is that he didn't have the common sense and the judgment in the moment to say, "This person's not a threat. This is not a thing I need to worry about." Now Omar Jimenez was fine. He was out of police custody within a half hour. He got a national apology from the governor of Minnesota, et cetera, which, I mean, you know, yes, I'm happy he's safe and he's okay, but that's still incredibly embarrassing. But the fact that the police didn't have the judgment to understand that that wasn't the time to do that, that's almost as jarring as the brutality itself, because that means that they're not going to have that judgment on the street when there's a 12-year-old in a damn... Playground that they roll up on and they fire multiple shots at within two seconds, or when someone is walking into an apartment building in New York City, Amadou Diallo, and they shoot him 41 times because he's reaching for his wallet, or when someone's pulling into a gas station and when the police officer asks them to produce their driver's license, and the person reaches into the car to get their driver's license, and the police officer fires shots at them. And wonders why they were reaching for something And the person looks back and says Because you told me to This is the reality of being black in America So That's been something that's been internalized For a long time With a lot of people Who look like me Who come from my family background Um, It didn't just come to us this week It just came to you this week And that's something to remember And something to take home with you Um, But I will say this It's good to know that Um, the the group of allies is growing, um, that more people are going to understand this in a more real way. And who knows? Maybe this is something in the lifetime of our children that we can look back and say that this was the turning point and this was the moment when everybody took the scourge of police violence seriously and that this was a pivot point to where we got serious about how to hold police accountable, how to lift up those police officers who are doing a good job. And there's a hell of a lot of them who are doing that, by the way. I know, I don't want to do the whole, I know a good police officer, I know a black person thing, but like, I know, I know many good police officers, some of them are related to me, some of them are very close to me and my family, I'm proud of them, they should be proud of that profession, but again, it's unfortunate that they have been shaded and they are um, built up in the same um, idea as the bad police officers, so um, we'll wrap up our conversation there. I want to thank you again for joining us here. It's Joel Payne on the Here Comes the Pain" podcast presented by Hip Politics Network. We had a great time this week. And we'll see you again soon. Thanks so much.